0: Fefferman.
1: And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced.
0: The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance.
1: Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world.
0: No talking points, no script, no agenda, just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us.
1: Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced.
0: You know, like nuanced,
1: but with a J. Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juanced, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Scholder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. We are very excited to
0: bring you another great episode of Juanced.
1: And before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. And for those of you listening later on in Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there's a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly, available on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash Podcast. Check it out when we record or watch all our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juans Podcast, as well as our website, www.juance.com. Also make sure you are following us on Instagram where
0: we are at Juance, and on Twitter, which I am updating right now at Juance Podcast. And always make sure to subscribe to Juance wherever you get your podcast: Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. And of course, we'd love it if you leave us a five-star review. There's a rumor on the dark web that it makes a difference. Once in a while.
1: Have you ever been in the dark web? I
0: don't even know what it is.
1: That's I've only amazing. heard about it. It's basically something, well, it's kind of inappropriate, but you can buy lots of drugs.
0: Can you buy like a chimpanzee liver?
1: I'm sure you can. Okay. I'm sure you can. So that's what the dark web it's is It's not for. even a joke. It's like drugs,
0: uh, weird porn, and like chimpanzee.
1: I like actually it. heard something once that I don't know if it's true. Maybe maybe, uh, maybe our <laughs> guest knows that the, the actual size of the dark web far exceeds the size of like the internet that we normally use. Like in terms of the amount of content that's available? I have available. a feeling you would know that, John.
2: You know, I actually don't. I've been on the dark <laughs> web, but I, I've not seen the expanse of it.
0: Okay. <laughs> Is there no guide to the dark web?
2: I mean, there are guides, but if you read those, then you're probably doing it wrong.
0: Right. <laughs> you're not doing it right. So uh, it's uh, happy Hanukkah, first of all. John, happy Hanukkah. Benny? Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. Back at you. Yeah you guys lighting candles at home
2: oh yeah yeah sure Why not? fire hazards everywhere fire hazards
0: i had the coolest thing i i uh uh, ran a crossfit as as one does every day um and we lit candles and i was like this is like the coolest thing in the world that like all these people who you know enjoy their bacon cheeseburgers and all that but everyone's like lighting candles together at at a crossfit in israel and it's like you know 50, 50 sweaty people are getting around uh Hanukkah with Sufganiot and all this, and it's like oh, I love it. I just, I, it's one of the things I love about living here. Can I ask, of-
2: actually? Do yeah. you guys know? I mean, where did the whole donuts thing come from?
1: Mm, fried food, just fried food.
2: Just fried food. I mean, <laughs> it's not like Israel's known for its donuts, but its donuts are tremendous this time of year.
0: They really are. They their game. Have you had them recently? The game is like
2: up. I mean, not not for a good year and a half, but okay. yeah. um, but you know, in recent years, yes. And, you know, I mean, we have a donut culture, I guess, primarily with the uh, police Um, (laughs) and maybe, you know, Simpsons watchers. But I, you know, I've just always been amazed at uh, or recently been amazed at uh, the emerging donut culture in Israel. That's only for like a few weeks.
0: You know what? It's starting. It's starting to be all year round. You see donut shops, you see bakeries having donuts.
1: We'll start with, Rol- Rolodin, with the, uh There's a bakery called Roladin here in Israel. You know, that started...
0: you know Rolodin, don't
1: you? Sure. They're like the ones that do the seriously crazy sufganiyot, and I think that they just realize that people are going to buy them year-round if they keep making them. But, John, you're, you're in Philadelphia, right?
2: No, I'm in D.C., but originally DC. from Philadelphia. Originally okay. from Philly.
1: Okay. I know that there's a donut place in Philadelphia that Michael Solomon runs called the Federal Donut.
2: Yes. Yes. I wonder if
1: he's doing special sufganiyot for Hanukkah. I hope he is. That'd be-
2: I've actually I've gotten the email ads uh, from there. I got on their list and I see all the things that I can't eat because I'm not there.
0: <laughs> I, I got to say, um, just as we're starting to to record this, so this is second night of Hanukkah when we're recording this. It is a Tuesday night. Um, I uh, my, the organization I'm working for, Sharaka, threw a Hanukkah slash UAE National Day celebration in Dubai. I couldn't what? I couldn't be there for it because of the flight. Let me. Is it National Day right now? It's it's this whole week is kind of national. Week, of national week, I guess you'd call it. Um, but we had to figure out how to get sufganiyot in Dubai. And uh, so uh, I, I think the kosher caterer, there's a few of them now, figured out how to make sufganiyot. And this is like a new thing now. You can now get fresh sufganiyot in the middle of the Arab world.
1: <laughs> they have crispy cream there too. They do have crispy cream. So I wonder, like, with, with the virtue of the sufganiyah versus the crispy, I mean, I, I, I hate to be. Controversial, but I, I would choose the crispy. Yeah.
0: You you were actually just there recently also ish. Weren't you in the Gulf?
2: Uh, I was in the Gulf. I was in Saudi for like a, uh, a heartbeat. Um, but I was actually just thinking, as you were talking about this, I was in the UAE on national day. I'm going to say it was like three years ago. And I'd say it was amazing. That, I mean, there were just um, jet fighters, just crisscrossing the sky, like for hours, it was amazing. I, I mean, you know, in Israel, they'll have like a flyover, they'll do yeah. the same thing like at a July 4th celebration at like a Phillies game or a Nats game or something. But I mean, I, it was like on the hour every hour there was an air show. Um I mean, it was they, fun.
0: They know how to put on a show, that's for sure.
2: They do. They, they
0: do. do. Did you go to Krispy Kreme there?
2: I can't say I did.
0: Can't say you did. You missed out. <laughs> I you? went to
2: McDonald's once no. in Kuwait, but but never Krispy Kreme in UAE. <laughs>
1: That'll be a different episode. We do fast food chains around the Middle East. I think I I think I mean, I I don't want to go too into this because we have a lot to cover here. But I think that's something that really struck me uh, when I was in in the UAE recently was that you literally have every single fast food, American fast food option like that there is. I even saw I saw I saw everything from like Chili's and TGI Fridays, McDonald's, Hardee's, Five Guys, Hardee's. To really obscure stuff, like I think I saw like an Arthur Treacher's. I don't know what that uh, is. It's a, a fish and chips shop that you see like on the rest stops <laughs> on the Jersey Turnpike. Benny uh, just got back from his
0: first trip uh, to the Gulf. And I'm actually curious to hear his uh, his uh, big
1: impressions, if you have any. Uh, I think that the way that I've been describing it to people that I've met is that um, if you take everything else away from it, it's strictly speaking, probably the most strikingly opulent place I've ever been in my yeah. life. Yeah, Dubai, a- at least. Anywhere yeah. ever, period. Like, hard stop. Uh, it, it, it's just, uh, it's like the Emerald City of Oz. Before uh, we jump into the show here, we got a couple announcements. All right. Uh, so check it out, everybody out there. Uh, as you know, West is a listener-supported podcast, and we rely on the generous support of listeners such as yourselves to make sure that we keep the show going with great guests and terrific content. So if uh, if you would like to make a contribution and join our listeners, and I think, I'm, I mean, we, we've stopped counting, Dan, fairly. I speaking. look once in a while. We're at about 140 countries. Something like that. Yeah. Something ridiculous. We still don't have China because of the firewall, but uh, I'm sure that there China. are some people listening with VPNs.
0: But, but the listenership in Russia is growing, finally.
1: Good, good, good. Yeah.
0: Uh, I think Putin is uh, one of our biggest
1: fans. Probably not. No? No. It would be cool if he was, though. It would be cool. Yeah. Uh, Basically, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, uh, you can do so at our uh, PayPal account. If you would pr- make an ongoing contribution, that would be awesome. You can do Even so better. on our Patreon account. Information can be found on our website, www.juwants.com. And, uh, and
0: you can also invite us to do a Juance Live for you, your community, your organization, uh, whatever it is. Um, we are really good at hosting, moderating, guiding conversations. And so we can do a dedicated podcast-sponsored for you, for your organization, again, reach out to us on www.juonst.com. Terrific. Dan, why don't you introduce our guest today? I'd be glad to. Uh, so this is a guest I've been wanting to have on, as I say this oftentimes, but I mean it every time, uh, Dr. John Chanzer, who uh, I've known for a very long time, uh, back when he still had slightly gray hair, but... Uh, but you've just got you kind of premature gray hair for a while um senior vice president for research at the foundation for defense of democracies which is i think i think it's fair to say i can say it maybe you can't one of the uh largest and most influential think tanks in washington today uh you Not guys,
2: largest but i'll i'll go with influential I,
0: I certainly think it is i mean looking at it from the side um put out fantastic work uh john oversees the organization's uh experts and scholars. Uh, he's on the leadership team of the FDD's Center on Economic and Financial Power, a project on the use of financial and economic power as a, stool of, as a tool of statecraft. Uh, I got to know John back when I was a very young intern at the Washington Institute, and you were a fellow at the Institute working on uh, Hamas, if I'm not mistaken.
2: I actually, back then, uh, I was working Hamas um, as almost the side project, uh, my book was on Al Qaeda affiliate groups. That's
0: right. Back then. That's right, that's right. So John, John, if you haven't figured this out, is a long time and one of the most respected analysts of the Middle East, um, certainly uh, in the United States. Uh, you speak Arabic, don't you?
2: A little bit, I do.
0: A little bit. And you just had your first interview in Hebrew. I noticed. So I we... did.
2: I broke my teeth, as you guys <laughs> would say.
0: So uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna quiz you at some point in the middle. We're just gonna switch to switch. Hebrew for the sake of the podcast. Um, Alongside a few books, monographs, and many, many, many articles, which are published widely on some of the most well-read and respected uh, media networks and newspapers around the world, John is the author of the recently published book on the Gaza conflict of 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War. I have to say it is the fastest uh, writing to publishing I've ever ever seen. And if I know John, I'm sure it's a very interesting book. Uh, And we will be talking about that and amongst other things today. So John Shanzer, very cool having you on Juanced.
2: It is a pleasure. It's good to see you.
0: What have you been up to?
2: Oh, you know, writing a book. (laughs) Uh, uh, You know, um, uh, writing a book, uh, going from ceasefire to bookshelf in 166 days, that's the... um, that's the time frame. I have to say it was exhausting. Um, and then you also forget, by the way, that when you write a book, the, the other exhausting part that comes after is the promotion of the book. Um, so you're out there writing op-eds and going on radio and podcasts. Podcasts weren't around for the last three books that I've written. So this is a go. new thing for me. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's been a little tiring, but, uh, I'm glad I got it out. Cause honestly, the, the, the war, or as you guys would call it the operation, the operation. You don't call operation. it a war. Right, a war, right, right. Operation. It's not a war. It's not a war. Um, yeah, even if, you know, 12,000 different munitions were fired during the course of 11 days, it wasn't a war. Is that a lot? That's um, <laughs> a lot. I think it's a lot. I'm pretty sure it's a lot. Um, but at any rate, um. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like it was the book to to write at the time because, um, I watched that conflict unfold on, do you guys have Apple TV in Israel? Do people watch Apple TV? People
0: have it. I don't have it.
2: So I got it, you know, just a month or two before the war, by the way, I'm not a paid spokesman for Apple, nor do I hold Apple stock. Um, but I, so I got it, uh, so that I could watch, you know, whatever the the TV shows were through the Apple TV, um, App itself, but then you can also get channel 11, Khan, and channel 13. And so I was able to watch live Israeli TV on kind of my big screen. You can do it with Roku and a couple of other channels too, but to be able to sort of toggle back and forth for me was incredibly important. But I I could also see Arabic TV. So I could watch Al Arabiya and Palestine TV even. And I got to say, the gap between the coverage here in the United States. And what I saw out of the region was astounding to me. You know, everybody talks about media bias or yeah. fake news. It doesn't, it doesn't do justice to what I saw. It was like there were they were covering two different conflicts entirely, like two different yeah. wars, two yeah. different operations, if you will. So um, when it was done, I took kind of a weekend off to catch my breath. And then I said, you know what? Screw it. There are so many things that I felt like they all got wrong. Um, by the way, including on the right, this wasn't a left-wing thing. It was just vapid coverage, really thin coverage of all of it. And the average American walked away just thinking, ah, yeah, the Palestinians and Israelis hate each other.
0: So. Yeah, they're, they're at it again.
2: Yeah, it's like Tom and Jerry, right? I mean, it yeah, just yeah. happens, right? Um, except it's not funny, right? Um, and I
0: mean, You saw like the John Oliver and the kind of Trevor Noah comments about
2: it. No, no, everything was incredibly snarky. They all acted like they knew what was going on, but there were so many, um, I I thought, interesting storylines that were lost in the coverage. And then you have the, you know, the idiots uh, quite bluntly that come on TV and provide talking points that actually have no relevance to the conflict as it's going on. And uh, so I said, you know what, I'm going to write this and I want to be the first one out there. So yeah, were. <laughs> we were um, instead of going through a, like a normal publishing house, we did. And this is actually the brave new world we're in. Um, we did it through Amazon services. So we did it through wow. FTD, um, which allowed us to have full control over the timeline and, yep. and the content, production, everything. Um, and so, you know, it, it's out there. And actually, the really cool part about it, and I didn't realize this. If you order the book, which, by the way, I wholeheartedly recommend all your listeners to do so. You um, do too. Okay. Um, but if you do, uh, that's when the book gets created. They don't have them sitting around in a warehouse. It's all done on demand. Right. So there's like you know, there's no overhead. It's kind of an amazing thing that I just It did. is amazing. Yeah. We had a
1: previous guest on, Shaked Berry, who who also wrote a book and she's published it that way as well. And Mark, she Mark a- Levy did the same thing. Did he? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's something that I, I think is happening more and more. And I think it's great. I think it's um, for
0: for we, uh, my first, I mean, it's a research book, again, not mass readership, but we did uh, the Institute self-published it, but we did kind of the old model where we printed out, you know, a few thousand copies and Every time, but this is this is, I think, much better. Certainly, more environmental. You know, print on demand. Can you hold up a copy for us? Do you have one handy? Hold up. Uh, you know, uh,
2: thank thank you for asking.
0: <laughs> so it is Gaza Conflict twenty twenty one, and we will put the link on the show notes uh, for the show, so that uh, all uh, and we will encourage certainly all of our listeners
1: and all of our viewers to order this book. I, I have to say also before even reading the book, great uh, cover graphics great art on the cover i
2: I will tell you there's a guy named daniel ackerman you can find him on twitter and facebook and um, i hope he's listening he's actually based in israel and um the really the cool story is that he heard me speak about a previous book that i had written "Hamas versus fatah the struggle for palestine that one came out in 2009 and so he was in Awesome, glad to hear it. Um, and he he, um, he attended a lecture that I gave as a college uh, as a college student, and then came to work for FTD. Actually, made Aliyah earlier this year, and um, he was the one who designed this. And he brought such incredible energy um, yeah. and excitement to this. And it's funny, but I mean, I feel like he promotes the book more than I do. Um, he's great. Anyway, um, it is, it is look, a
0: great cover. Hold it up again so people can see.
2: Oh, for sure.
0: Because the um, you have to look really it, closely, but it's, you got to look
2: closely. You can see all the it's got all kinds of emojis, um, yeah. you know, different rocket variants. Um, anyway, with you know, obviously the it's the Tel Aviv skyline in the background and Iron Dome at the bottom. You know, pretty symbolic of what was happening there that the media and the violence itself, um, you know, it was just simply overwhelming. Uh, at the time. And again, I think, you know, Israel stood alone, largely, and it was, um, it was rough to watch. Well,
0: let's, let's talk about this for a second, because, you know, I, I spent uh, the entirety of that conflict in the month after speaking to many American audiences about what's going on, because I, you said something that I think we see regularly. And that's, if you're watching this from the US, forget which political side you're from, you're getting a totally different view of reality, you're seeing what well, you said, you're seeing a different conflict. Can you talk about the differences you saw between the U.S. and Israeli media, between Israeli media and Arab media, and maybe even between the different Arabic uh, networks? Because I think there were also starting to develop this kind of, you know, different takes on on reality coming from. Oh
2: yeah, I mean, Arabic. I mean, I, I only I, to be fair, I only watched you know little bits of sure. Al Arabiya, but. What was interesting, actually, on the Arabic, and I'll get to the, the difference between the U.S. and Israel in a second. But um, what was really remarkable to me was that this was the first conflict that I watched um, on TV where they weren't running stories day and night vilifying Israel. You could actually see the impact right. of the We're Abraham not. Accords, not. Yeah, you could actually yeah, begin yeah. to see the um, the impact of the Abraham Accords yes. on the coverage. Now, of course, you didn't see that with um, you know Al Jazeera. Um, you know, run by Qatar, owned by Qatar, and of course right. the Qataris are huge sponsors of Hamas for for decades running now. Sure. So you wouldn't expect that to change. Um, you know, uh, you know, Palestine TV. Obviously, there's a whole different tone to that. But at least I thought it 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 tracked with what was going on broadly speaking within the Israeli press. In other words, what the Israelis were watching. You know, the Palestinian uh, networks were also watching. Mm. Then you flip to the U.S. channels and, you know, it was just this. uh, 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 They would revert, a lot of the analysts anyway, would revert back to sort of, you know, smearing Israel with the apartheid label, um, looking at the death count as some sort of meaningful metric for who's the aggressor and who's the defender which is an insane thing because, of course, Israel's got Iron Dome and it's protecting both Israelis and Palestinians. It's protecting is, Israeli Arabs. Um, and by I'll the way,
0: say, I'll say more than that. I told I told people, you know, <laughs> why should you be at fault if you're better at the war that you're fighting in? I mean, it's like, it's like you don't go to a football game and you get mad at the team that's winning. Like, oh, you guys are winning by too much. This is ridiculous. You know, put in your B team. It's like, it, it's a war. You're, you're supposed to win right. it. You're supposed to by have, the way, I mean, you know. actually,
2: in sports, you know, they will say that if you're you're blowing out the other team, put in your B team by the third quarter or the fourth quarter. So, oh, that you know, yeah. but but you're talking about life and death. Exactly. With yeah. war. Right. Yeah. You don't put in your B team when you could lose lives. And, exactly. and, and so but but also what people don't, I think, also appreciate here is that Iron Dome um, gives the Israeli military the time and space to make its decisions without pressure which yes. means they're going to make fewer mistakes. They're going to react um, far less out of anger and more out of calculated military doctrine, which yeah. is what you want during times of conflict. And the result is that there were and I think 11 people that were killed. I think that was the final number. Um, of course, every loss of life is a tragedy, but when you think about the sheer number of munitions that were flying back and forth, 4,000 4, yeah. rockets into Israel, probably three times that, um, in terms of what Israel fired back in response, um, but the the loss of life was minimized to a remarkable degree the precision with which Israel carried out this conflict. It was un- it's unbelievable. To this day I am in shock that Israel is able to carry out conflict in this way. Um, and it wasn't a conflict that it initiated. It had to respond to aggression from Hamas and yet still maintained, Um, these small numbers. So that was remarkable to me. But I mean, I could give you a couple of other highlights that that I get into in the book. You know, one thing that happened here was that everybody pointed to the, you guys remember the Sheikh Jarrah uh, controversy, this real estate controversy. You know, to this day, there are all these reports out there that says that Israel, uh, because of the court case over this real estate controversy, that Israel caused the war. I'm sorry but you know guns cause war rockets cause war real estate disputes do not cause war that is maybe a contributing factor but not a cause there was the other part of it which you know drove me crazy as well which was that the month before the war the palestinians canceled their elections and which went the-
0: totally unnoticed
2: Totally unnoticed, mm-hmm. right? And it and what was amazing about that was that the Biden administration initially said, Green light, go ahead, hold these il- elections, even if Hamas takes part. Hamas, a terrorist organization that, if actually it won seats, would prompt a cutoff of American funding and political recognition. These were laws that were put in place by a guy you may have heard of. His name is Senator, then Senator Joe Biden, hmm. right? Um, and, and so You know, here you have this massive kind of momentum leading up to the elections. Then finally, cooler heads prevail. They cancel them. Did you think that Hamas was just going to sit back and say, yeah, okay, cool, win some, lose some? Or do you think they were going to try to put themselves back front and center as the leaders of the Palestinian cause? And how do you do that if you can't take part in elections? How do you put yourself front and center? Well, Hamas does one thing really well they try to kill Israelis, they start start wars. And so, you know, if anything, that looked like the the real trigger um, went completely unnoticed because here in this country, nobody follows Palestinian internal politics.
1: Let let, let me ask you this, because I think that you'll provide a little bit of perspective on this from from what I can see. it, it, it seems as though the the American media probably addressed this uh, coverage of this conflict in similar ways that it addresses many different issues of great nuance or complex uh, issues, um, which is to say there are prepackaged narratives that kind of uh, play towards whatever team that network is trying to uh, sort appeal of play to, to or, or, or appeal to. So, you know, gone are the days when when at least in the mainstream media, you uh, journalists would sort of report the facts that are happening where the or the story that's taking place on the ground because people would turn to the press to sort of uh, you know try to find out information now it seems like if you're listening to certain you know different different news networks you're looking for a particular agenda or a particular narrative so the coverage is going to sort of appeal to to that sort of a a i don't want to say like a slant or so yeah but but also because we're living in this sort of uh you know, crazy, strange, social media ish type of a type of an era. It seems almost like the talking points that are being prepared or being presented on the on, 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 on mainstream media, it reads kind of like you're reading the comment section on a post on social media. It's very, very shallow dialogue, if 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 at all uh, anybody that presents a more nuanced point of view is not not really played or welcome to to appear for that long. Um, the very fact that we're talking about how you know the, it seems like something they got the most coverage was John Oliver, which is which is not even a, a real. I mean, it's no, it's it's news. it's, it's, it's news-tainment, right? It's like I, a. I, I usually like John Oliver, that's
0: why I was. I know, but you can't really
1: it. say that John. I mean, it's news.
0: It's just the the the, the commentary is snarky, which which makes it fun, but it's still news now what do you think
1: i don't know if you can call
0: it
2: it's a take on the news right it's using it's it's using the news as a vehicle for comedy um but the problem is is that i think that many americans actually watch these shows to get informed i mean i have to say john stewart could probably be elected president of the united states because he actually is seen broadly speaking as a good source for information um and, and, and people like him as a result of the show that he put on. Maybe John Oliver, I don't know, maybe he can't because he's British, British. I don't know, right. So maybe, maybe he can maybe that's, maybe, but he could become governor of California go. <laughs> or something, right? Um, but 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 actually, I mean, I'll just say that the, the environment that you're describing um, is, it goes beyond just what the media was producing, which was, I mean, just to be blunt, it was a dumpster fire. During the the course of the conflict, but you know we also see it now trickling down or trickling up, I guess, to Congress, right, yeah. where you have you know members of the squad, right, or as I now like to call them, the Hamas Caucus, right. They're out there calling for the zeroing out of um uh, of Iron Dome, right, and and to the zeroing out of precision guided munitions, which Israel fires. Where they don't destroy an entire building or a a city block but take out one terrorist inside one window while leaving everybody else intact so the message was like well you know next time we encourage you to have a much bloodier war because we're angry right i don't don't even understand what that means yeah i I don't
1: think i don't i i know that they themselves are probably understanding what they're doing. I think that when they're saying things like that, they're, again, appealing towards the demographic that chooses to vote for them particularly, which I would assume is not exactly the most read in demographic when it comes to trying to understand the complex nuance of the issue. Uh, And I think that in that, what I at least saw, and I'm from Minneapolis and Elon Omar is my uh, the, the congressman or congresswoman in, in the district that I that I live in there. That so I, write, write, write a
2: letter. Write a letter. Yeah, yeah. right.
1: Uh, I, it seems as though there's just the narrative of like Jews, Israel, apartheid bad. Therefore, we cannot support iron and, 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 dome because that's giving something to the Israelis. Yeah. And, and, and if I, I go and I vote for that and I do that, the people that vote for me will, will, they won't like that,
0: but they're not showing leadership. I noticed something else. Not. I so I noticed something else. And I noticed that we went to the States a few months after, and, and I was having a long, I mean, I saw this before, but it really hit me hard. I was having a long conversation with a, a Jewish professional. Okay. And a Jewish educator who's been to Israel many times speaks decent Hebrew you can't say someone who hates Israel. And she was like, I'm fed up. I'm disgusted with Israel. And everything she was saying, and this is, this is something that I think they are doing in America. Certainly, um, you know, you see it, everything's through a racial lens because that's the lens that everyone thing in America is now through a racial lens. And, and I, I keep trying to explain to people, I was like, Israel's got a lot of problems. Okay. uh, You know, I, I won't ignore for a second that the policy or the, the, the uh, implementation of policy and the whole Shakespeare thing was, was just ridiculous and, and unnecessary. I won't talk about how I don't think we really have a long-term strategy for Gaza. And I'd love to hear your take on that in a second here also, John, but you know, to put what's going on here through a racial lens is just ridiculous. And, and, and something that, you know, I did, I just did this on an American speaking to her now, and I was trying to do it in a nice way, but I was on, I was in San Francisco, I was in the Bay area, speaking mostly to liberal audiences and I don't consider myself a conservative, by the way. I just happen to be speaking to liberal audiences. And I kept saying, stop viewing what's happening in the Middle East through your American lens and through your American perspective. And specifically on Israel, stop looking at it through a racial lens. It's very hard for them. It's unbelievable. I've got an article coming out this week in the Jerusalem Strategic Tribune that's that's explaining this exact thing. And I don't know how else to explain to them, but, but, you know, stop being so American centric by how you view the world. I mean, I, I don't know how else to say it. Do you think they can? Yes. You can be aware, you know, you know, the whole, like the woke movements, check your biases thing, check your prejudices. It needs to be thrown back at them because they're doing it. They're just not realizing that they're doing it.
2: I believe it's check your privilege.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Damn. Thank you. You see how woke I am. <laughs> It has I, to be thrown back at them, um, you know, it, because because it's just ridiculous to view what's happening between Israel and the Palestinians as a racial thing. It's a lot of other things. It's not racial. <laughs> you know?
1: Right. Well, I, I find that it's kind of discouraging because I don't I don't know when I'm when I'm looking at what's going on in the States. And I just got back from the States. I, I don't I don't know if there's necessarily the interest on the part of most people to try to delve into uh the complexities of this conflict. And I think that the longer it, it sort of is here with us, the more people are simplifying it into those types of terms. I, I think you've seen that with a lot of things. And, and I think that this conflict is, is one of them where it's just, like like you just said, it's if you're looking at it from a racial point of view and if you're seeing the entirety of what's going on in the world from a racial context, it's, you're going to see it that way or you're, you're not, there's not a lot of people who are saying, okay, let, let's pause and try to understand what's really going on here. And let me try to read, you know, as much as I can going back many, yeah. many, many years, try to understand the, the roots of this conflict and what's going so on. So guys,
2: yeah, I, I mean, I would take that a step further, to be honest. Me I mean, look, I, I would say that this country here has turned inward. And look, I mean, to be fair, a lot of countries have during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but But, you know, there is far less interest right now in foreign affairs on anything. I mean, we have like a a great power competition uh, heating up with China right now. And I don't know, um, you know, I I don't know what the average American understands about even that, Um, you know, the, you know, there there are a lot of countries that Americans still can't even point to on a map, right? I mean, there's the old joke here that you know the only way that Americans learn geography is when they go to war with a country. Um, that that's how they know where Iraq is, um, you know, or 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 Afghanistan. I mean, but but we, what we have right now is um, the rise of what I think has broadly been described correctly as neo isolationism. We're tired of fighting wars. We're tired of being involved. When I say we, I mean, generally speaking, the American public, they don't want to be involved in any of this stuff anymore. Iraq, Afghanistan left a bad taste in their mouth. The war on terror, it's over. Whether ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Hezbollah still live, doesn't matter. We're out. right? Um, And the focus is turned inward. And the focus is just flat out bizarre. I mean, the debates in this country about whether we should be masking or vaccinating, right? That These are the things that we care more about, right? Uh, which is to be bizarre. I mean, why don't we do all those things and get on with it so we can get back to our lives? Yeah, but no, yeah, we have to yeah. argue about these well, things instead.
1: It's, it's frankly speaking, it's a goddamn shame. And, and for me, it's frightening because the rest of the world and the adversaries of the United States, and the adversaries of the West are not taking a break. And looking inward no, and nor are they about having a debate or having, about, yeah, exactly. or having a debate about vaccinations <laughs> the, you know china and russia and and other adversaries of the united states are taking advantage of this time to to grow benny they to they're, invest they're, in their population they're helping to cause and, these rifts, and they're helping to I quite mean, directly cause these rifts in american society and i think that and america's falling for it and i, th- I think they're falling. look i i was having a conversation the other day with my dad and and with uh with with some of his friends and, uh, and and they were we were talking about what's it called Alexa, the Amazon uh, thing that's, you know, hello, Alexa, can you play this song or order me something or something like that? And they were talking about how, um, you know oh, my God, I can't believe that, uh, you know, it's, it's listening to us all the time. And and, and, it's, and it's strange that it's going to tell us what we what we should buy. And and it's going to define for us the reality that we're living in and all these things. And 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 I don't know if that's yeah, a big it's, deal it's, it's, it's or, or not. Thing, so. And I kind of stopped them and I said, you know. The fact that you're thinking that that's something that you can stop at this point, is, to me, it's downright cute. Like I, I don't know what else to say. Like you, you've bought into this sort of a thing, and right now you're waking up to the fact that there's actually a, a, an other side to that coin, which is that you've sold yourselves as data to these to these companies, which have, you know, quite frankly, there's there's big interest in those companies abroad in China and Russia, and they okay. know how to use those those systems very well, uh, and and it just seems like it's almost like everything that we're talking about right now is too little, too late. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you can turn the clock back on that one. Uh, and, and, it, and it's frightening to me. I mean, you, you talk about, you know, it's not far off to think that uh, in a couple of, of short years here, you could see some sort of a social credit system in the United States. Oh, my God. Uh, are, you, are you working on China stuff in this regard, John?
2: Yeah, I mean, ftv has got a really high, a robust China program. We've got some really good people that have been looking at, you know, China's attempts to influence um, our state and local governments um china's attempts to influence uh the university system um here in the u.s uh it's rare earth minerals policy and how how crucial that is um right now in terms of global competition um you know what what's widely known as um civil military fusion uh where the chinese are going around and buying up what's typically identified as civilian companies but the applications of some of their mm. technologies. Can be used in the military realm, and and so you just get a sense, you know. I mean, there it's the old adage that you know they're playing chess, uh, or maybe they're playing go, but we're playing checkers, right? We're we're just you know, and, and so we're sitting there. If you don't know go. Let's go. Go, go is a um, it's it's uh, it's a strategic game. It's actually very simple. Your job is to surround the enemy's pieces with your own, um, and it's a long oh. game. And yeah, it's a you could you could buy the an, an app and play it online, or you can get it. I mean, when I was in China, I actually um I, I bought a game for my kids. Um, it, I mean, for some reason, it it doesn't appeal to my children the way that I thought it would. Um, but I mean, but it's not a kids game. It's actually it's like chess. I mean, you can keep playing it and you can learn strategy. And right. uh, yeah, it's 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 apparently like wildly popular in China, and uh, as a result, in um, other parts of uh, of Asia as
0: well. I used to I used to have a, I had an office mate back in the army for a while. This guy is like mega genius. Not just like a like it was an office full of generally smart people. It was kind of like the think tank of the IDF. And this guy was like on another level of genius above everyone else. And we would kind of in our break time play basically like three D. Tic-tac-toe. On, on a We would take a whole sheet of um, graph paper, okay? Have a whole sheet of graph paper. There's no borders to the game except the border of the sheet. And you play, uh, instead of three in a row, you have to get five in a row. But you can keep adding and keep expanding. That's what I thought you were talking about for a second. I have to see maybe it's related. Um,
2: no, no, this is this is one dimensional, but one dimensional. you'll see it's 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 far more complicated than, okay, than it sounds. It and and there's sort of, you know, levels of um, of skill.
1: I'm, I'm gonna look, yeah.
2: yeah I'm, if you want to start think, thinking like a strategist, got to get on that game. John,
1: let, let me ask you a question. We're talking about China. It, it it seems and, you know, we're talking about the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. It, it seems like it's kind of. In the age of social media and the way that the American society right now is is uh, is structured, how how does democracy beat the Chinese system at this stage?
2: So yeah, it's it's a great question, and I would say that um, you know there are a couple things going on here. One is the question of the the American moral posture, the ethical way with which we govern our own. And the way that we extend our influence around the world is in direct competition with the very transactional approach of the Chinese, right? So the Chinese are like, look, we'll give you free money, right? Or we'll give you money at, uh, without interest, or we'll give yeah. you cheap labor, or we'll let you, you know, we'll build a bridge for you at, at pennies on the dollar. Um, and we don't care what you do, we don't care how you treat your own people, we don't care how you treat other people around the world. So the US is trying to differentiate itself from the Chinese in that way. Um, We're still holding fast to democracy and rule of law and free market economies and, and morals and ethics. And the question is, can we win being the good guys, right when they're playing dirty? And I don't know the answer to that yet, but I think part of the problem, at least in my view, is that I don't know how much pride we have in that and I don't know how convinced we are of our own approach. Right. Um, It certainly didn't seem that way under the the um, the Trump years. It was transactional there as well. Um, And it sort of looked like we were trying to beat them at their own game. But they're you know, you can't beat the the sort of OG at their own game. Right. Um, And that was kind of that was part of the problem. Now I see the Biden administration trying to wield our, you know, American values as a way to defeat the Chinese. But we're not I don't know if we're there yet. I don't know if we are. And by the way, a really interesting battleground is Israel. Um, I don't know how much you guys are are tracking this, but um, you know, during the Trump years, there was this re- interesting flap. It, it kind of started with the Haifa Port incident, yeah. if you remember that, right, where the the, um, the Chinese bought the rights to build. Um, on, on the Haifa port near, by the way, where American servicemen were docking. The American
0: bases. Yeah, exactly. that's
2: right. And so um, all of a sudden people got angry about the fact that Israel had, had sold the rights to the for the Chinese to do this. But the amazing thing was that the United States never even bid on the project. The United States never even tried to gain uh, the, the access that ultimately the Chinese did. And so it actually shows that even on a transactional level, we're not really competing, and we're also, here in the US, we're not telling our allies like Israel, well, here are the rules for engagement. What we can end up doing, what we often do is we say, you know, we don't like that, and we wag a finger um, at our friends say, "Don't, don't do that. No, 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 don't do that, but they're not saying, okay, well, here's an incentive system for you to yeah. not work with the Chinese. Here's a better and, alternative. And, and, and here's why we're better partners. Even if you don't make as much money out of the deal, here are some of the other things that you're going to get, a defense umbrella, yeah. a partnership with us on clean tech or you know whatever it is. Um, and so I, I think the US is still trying to figure this out. I mean, a lot of people talk about how we're maybe in the beginning of uh, some kind of new Cold War. And we may be, that may be where we are, but- Within the Cold War structure, America had a clear sense of what it was trying to accomplish. And it was trying to influence all of our allies and even potential allies around the world to rally around the cause of anti-communism.
0: Right. It had to defined values. It, that's it had, right. Yeah, exactly. And, and it had that's and, right. and I I feel I feel like watching America for the last few years. Uh, you said earlier neo-isolationism, right? Uh, and that's kind of where Trump was heading. I think it's where Obama was heading before that. Um, Right. So, you know, it's kind of a bipartisan thing that's been happening in America. And it, it seems to me like, you know, America, at least today's America, I don't know, maybe it needs sort of a Cold War. Like maybe it needs a rallying cry because it's become so divided, so polarized it doesn't have, there's no clear sense among Americans today of what America is supposed to stand for. Does it stand for something greater in the world? Cool, go pursue that. Does it stand for a model of racial equality and justice and and that? Or is it, you know, something more ethnic, which which I I think a lot of people have been pushing that in, in recent years, and it's just, there's no clear sense. And then I think behind all of that, you have Russia, you have China, you have Iran sniping and, and on social media and creating these divisions and trying to inflame them. Um, and, and I don't think people are aware that a lot of the really divisive memes and posts that you see on social media are actually, you know, trolls from America's enemies and adversaries around the world. We talk about that more than a few times on this, on this platform. Um, but but that, that's a real thing. And I think, I don't know. Maybe maybe I hate to use the word Cold War because it's got the word war in it, but maybe a rivalry, a strong rivalry, some kind of sense of. Yeah, but America. I think
1: people have to know about it and, and actually care about it.
0: And, and whatever it is, America needs to reclaim its sense of purpose in the world. And,
1: and I'll say I'll say even one, one thing more. It seems that in the previous Cold War, the U.S. didn't need much from Russia. Right. There was a there was a balance. You had mutually assured destruction. You had an arms race. But Russia, Russia wasn't you know, a major trading partner of the United States. It, it seems like in Correct. this, in this round, you have a China which understands very well its place in the world of manufacturing and a distribution of goods. Uh, and it produces things at mass scale for an incredibly cheap price. Not anymore. And Americans are very addicted to that. And I think that you look at, I mean, I don't know if you realize what's going on in America right now with like the shipping crisis that's yep. going on and, you know, some people will look at that and they'll say, you know, okay, well, it's it's due to uh, not have enough truck drivers. It's due to outdated it's due to, infrastructure. It's due to outdated infrastructure. No, I think what it's really due to is the fact that you buy so much stuff from abroad. Oh, that You don't manufacture true. things, you know, stateside anymore. What, what's your take on this?
2: Oh, I mean, a hundred percent. But, you know, you, you mentioned mutually assured destruction, Benny. Uh, I'll just tell you that, um, you know, there is that, with this new great power competition that's emerging but there's also mutually assured economic destruction between these two powers right now right i mean you know america's america's the buyer you know china's the seller and if this thing implodes oh by the way you also have the chinese buying up american debt hand over fist so if, if that somehow defaults or if that arrangement falls apart you're looking at mutual just, yeah, mutually assured destruction uh, for both sides here times two, right? There's the military and then there's the economic component of this. Um, but so it's a Gordian knot is a, probably the best way of describing it. They're, you know, they can't even go to their corners, um, You know, these two great powers right now. They're locked in this really interesting struggle. You know, I went to China, um, gosh, it was 2016, so five years ago. It seems like a, a, lot, a lifetime ago. I actually went to Xinjiang,
0: did they let you uh, where, in?
2: They they, they did. There's probably I don't know, how you know, they're not they're not letting people in anymore, but I was there.
0: No, um, I mean from a political perspective, did they they like they let oh, someone Oh, I was
2: actually I was there on a a a, on a junket that was um, approved by the Chinese Communist Party.
0: I wonder how um, how much they were tapping your phones and hotel rooms. Oh for my sure. You have,
2: you have no, no, you have no idea. I mean, I would be sitting around at dinner, and all of a sudden, my phone would just stop working. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm watching the whole operating system refresh, um, which you know, it's a bit jarring when you realize uh, you're you're <laughs> like your phone's being hacked as you as you <laughs> sit there. You're right? watching. Mean, yeah. Um, yeah. The other. Um, The other thing that was amazing is we were having a conversation, a group of us. We were in um, in this like minibus. And I mentioned something about this was during, obviously, uh, the Obama era before the election. And I was talking about how it looked like Obama's approach to foreign policy in the Middle East was managed decline. That was the word that I used. Yeah, that's I stepped into a meeting. Yeah, yeah. So but then I stepped into a meeting with a senior CCP official who asked me flat out said uh, you recently were talking to your um, your colleagues about managed decline in the Middle East. Please tell me. I mean, clearly there was a microphone in the box, um, so you just get a sense of of you know again how, how this how this government operates, how this regime operates, um, and it's very scary. But I, I mean, I getting back to the kind of broader point, I think that America needs to figure out. Um, what it wants to do um, in order to counter the the Chinese, and and by the way, th- I mean this actually, if I can, I'll bring it back to the book. I mean, one of the things that I um, that I talk about in the book is that you know, so we're talking about leaving the Middle East, we're talking about getting out entirely, no more Afghanistan, no more Iraq, probably but no America, Syria. America is yeah. yeah, we're trying to we're talking about getting out of the Middle East, and you know, the question is if you're gonna do that then maybe you have to find some of the responsible actors that can fill the void and continue to fight for your values when you won't. Right. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be like there are a couple of countries that are willing to do that. I would say Israel is certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. You could probably add in the UAE um, kind of, best in breed within the Gulf, if we're to call it that, and maybe even a couple of the other countries uh, within this sort of pragmatic Sunni bloc, if we're gonna call it that. But you've gotta at least give Israel the ability to defend itself and to give it all the support that it needs when those moments arise. And that's gonna have to be a hallmark of American policy if we're gonna pivot away, if we're gonna start to become more isolationist in our outlook. Um, and we're also going to have to start to explain to the Israelis and the Emiratis and others what it means if we're not there. Um, what are the rules? of engagement? What,
0: what does it mean to not be there? I mean, I've, I've been saying this for a long time. Um, I, I wrote, gosh, back when they were agreeing on the last defense deal during the Obama era, I wrote. I mean, this is the direction that I think it has to go to. America wants out of the Middle East. That's clear. I think America doesn't know what it's doing in the Middle East in large part. Not people like you, of course, but on the government level, on the mass scale level, the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, these are not generally managed well. But but like you said, it's very clear that there be something in place that can do that. In America, I think there can be a huge win-win here if America can put the pieces in place, the arms in place, the political power in place, the funding in place for, let's call it a Middle Eastern NATO. I mean... I, you know, and that's kind of where I think this needs to go. Israel's getting bigger. Uh, the Emiratis have a lot of power. Let's talk about the Saudis. Uh, the Egyptians can play a role here. I mean, this is. Meato. Meato? No, that's awful. <laughs> that's awful. <laughs> Meato. It sounds like one of those new <laughs> vegan meat substitutes. Uh, it's exactly what I was
2: going to say, right? The impossible burger.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, the impossible coalition. That's what I really like. Right. <laughs> I think we just coined something here. <laughs> well, jo- Jonathan, you were. You I hope were,
2: not. I hope not.
1: Do, do the Saudis join Mito, Jonathan?
2: Uh I think they. I think they're tempted. Um, you know, it has to be halal Mido. Um <laughs> <laughs> That was bad. Sorry. Uh, it. Uh, it. It. You know, look. Here's what I would say about the Saudis right now. So they're fighting a war, um, against the Houthis in Yemen, right? I
0: like really it's, badly.
2: Well, it's actually it's much better than it, it has been. There hasn't been an errant strike in more than a year. Most people don't oh, know that because, true, you know, true. because the Hamas caucus is going after the, the Saudis, too. And, and you know, the media is relentless, uh, et cetera. But I mean, here you have the Saudis are fighting an Iran proxy, much like Israel has fought Hezbollah or Hamas. And um, except you know, the way that Israel handled Hamas was remarkable, right? I mean, they had incredible intelligence. They knocked out all the, the key assets. Um, you know, with precision, they're taking out the leaders. In 11 days, they, you know, they really um, probably halved um, the, the power of Hamas, right. if not maybe even more. So Saudi's looking on and they're saying, I want some of that, right? I want to know how to do that.
0: Yeah, how, exactly. And, is and this so, a future of war. I mean,
2: what's that? Is
0: this the, the the near future of war? What Israel managed to do?
2: I I mean, I think as long as Iran is promoting proxy warfare in the Middle East, then this is the future of war in the Middle East. Now, the only issue is that every war that passes, the proxies will have more sophisticated weaponry. They're going to have better precision, they're going to have better payloads, they're going to have better yeah. distance, they're going to have drones, underwater drones, I mean, you name it, right? But the Israelis were on top of it on during this last round, they were on top of it for three previous rounds. And so I think that when, you know, Saudi looks around the region, they say, okay, we're getting crushed right now in Yemen, and we may have more battle to do in other places. Um, And by the way, the the Bahrainis are probably thinking about uprisings that could take place from their Shiite populations. The Emiratis are probably concerned about how their oil facilities could get attacked the way the Saudis did. So they're all thinking about what they need to do to be stronger and better prepared. And I'm sorry, there's only one country that seems to have its act together right now and has taken the fight to the bad guys. Um, now, whether Israel can continue to do that is anybody's guess, but they're certainly the only game in town right now.
0: What um, you know, something you alluded to, uh, and something that I think here in Israel, certainly in the West, and a lot of parts of the world, I think we take for granted, and that's um, terrorist organizations or proxy, you know, militaries or, or paramilitary groups, whatever you want to call them. And these kind of these are all of it. I mean, you can't call Hamas just a terrorist group anymore. It's a it's it's a non. It's a sub-state military. I mean, it's 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 an organized force. Hezbollah is an, is more potent than most militaries, I think, in the region, I- even in the world. There, it's learning- actually
2: it's stronger than the average European army.
0: There, you yeah, go, for sure. There you go. So, so the these these are they're learning too. And I think what what I wrote about and what I spoke about um, is is Hamas did a lot of lessons learned also between you know the last round of conflict and this round of conflict and they're always you know doing doing their lessons through and they're always improving their accuracy their loads the way they hide it the way they get underground all of these things improve for our enemies too it's not just like we're sitting here you know learning the lessons and improving they are too what does the next conflict look like between Israel and Hamas and then let's t- go from there to do you have any kind of sense of how to fix Gaza, how to fix Hamas?
2: Ah, we're getting to the softballs now.
0: Exactly. Okay. exactly. Yeah, yeah, easy,
2: <laughs> easy, easy. Uh, all right, so look, the first thing to say is the future of war, um, I would say in the Middle East is um, can be summed up in one acronym, PGM, precision guided munitions. Um, the Iranians have been trying to, provide PGMs to Hezbollah for the better part of seven, maybe eight years. And for all the stuff that you see in the news about things going boom in the middle of the night in Damascus on the tarmac in the airport um, or other places around um, the war-torn country, it's Israel trying to prevent these PGMs from getting through. We understand that there's maybe somewhere between a couple of dozen to a couple of hundred of these precision guided munitions in Hezbollah's hands that they're able to build some, smuggle others. But the goal is to be able to hit something with very precise measures. So, um, you know, hitting within 10 or 20 yards of the intended mark. So, and from the perspective of Israel, that means Demona. It means the chemical plant in Haifa. It means the
0: the, the hangers. Yeah.
2: The Kiriyah in in downtown Tel Aviv.
1: Um, Juat Studio. The
0: want Studio in Eichovot—that is—that
2: is a serious strategic target, from what I heard. It is a strategic from target my, my, from my my friends who are deep inside the system. Um, <laughs> the <dark> yeah. <laughs> They're really deep, though. I mean, they're you know. so deep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at any rate, uh, you know. Th- so anyway, so that that's what the war would look like in 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 Lebanon, and that's the Israeli military is just they've already identified PGMs as the number three, number two threat to Israel, second only to the Iranian nuclear program. But so the question I think that a lot of people are asking is, you know, can Hamas get those same weapons? Number three we-
0: on the list is a really badly uh, uh, contaminated load of hummus that would just go you know viral and, and get everyone at e coli That
1: was that was not a funny joke
0: i should have prepared it a little better no, <laughs> it was I mean, not good that was not... it was not good
1: yeah but usually a good hummus joke will go a long way
0: i know, you know? i was I mean, trying i was trying yeah, i saw yeah, yeah. you know
2: yeah. sorry sorry yeah. sorry um, no. you have I'll... a good friend you gotta, you gotta have a good friend over there i mean benny just gave it to you straight
0: we edit. Uh, we edit that out
2: <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, so, but you know, in terms of fixing Gaza, and I get into this a little bit in the book too, um, you got to cut off the funders and you got to make Hamas come to the table groveling, asking for the ability to be rehabilitated or to be brought back into the system. But right now, you know, we're about to give Iran hundreds of billions of dollars in sanctions relief if they go back into the Iran again, right? Repeat, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let's see what happens now. Right.
1: Going to be prepared again in giant pallets of cash.
2: I don't know. It's a good question. It didn't go well the last time for the Obama folks. So maybe they've learned a lesson, but let's find out. But you know, you know, that's
1: still around? (laughs)
2: yeah he's on msnbc now you can catch him there he's got uh, a
1: podcast actually
0: i'm sure he does
1: you guys
2: ought to you guys ought to bring him on Juanced. it'll be a
0: blast
1: you know Uh, we'll get him and peter biden at the same time
0: i think i'm on the show fun i'd have him on the show i would too let's make it happen let's do it
2: yeah um i can't help you but at any rate um so you gotta cut off the funding to the Iranians, but then you also get you got to cut off the funding to the Turks. People don't talk about how the Turks are supporting right. Hamas. There's a huge, you know, headquarters in, in Istanbul. And the Israelis are talking about, you know, a potentially some kind of reproachment rapprochement between Turkey and, and Israel. That's insane as long as this thing is going on between the Turks and Hamas. And you get the Qataris, right? The Qataris are, are actually in Gaza now handing out money. Who are, they, they, also, handing they, are they, they handing
0: it to Hamas or are they handing it to? PA? Well,
2: now PA. they have these UN approved credit cards, which, of course, can't be used by terrorists. No, of course not. Right. Of course not. Right. So you got them. You actually even have Malaysia in there also as a kind of a budding uh, jurisdiction for Hamas uh, sponsorship. But the point is, is that if you actually want to isolate Hamas and make it begin to you know act more responsibly, then you got to cut off All the funding, and then do your best to cut off all of the the smuggling. It's at that point that Hamas can potentially come back and say,
1: Let me me ask this. Okay, so we just talked about state actors that are funding Hamas the Turks, the Qataris, somehow the Malaysians are involved, uh, the Iranians to an extent. What about illicit funding?
2: Illicit funding?
1: Okay, for example, people around the world that support Hamas that want to give Hamas money through legit I mean, and non and illegitimate. Well, business. I mean, John, you actually have a background in illicit funding, not not funding, like
0: tracking. And Inca-
2: like. countering it, yes. Encountering, not in, not, not in the illicit. Just to be clear. It.
0: No, I don't know if you know this, Benny. Um, uh, Hezbollah, for example, used to run this Blood diamond, yeah, used car—you know—racket know, 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 to try know. to smuggle money. And, they like, still are involved heavily with sure in drugs in South tra- America. I just don't track it anymore. Is is does Hamas do any of that kind of stuff? I know his. They they
2: don't have the narco-terrorism connection. A lot of it is is just direct assistance from the countries that we just mentioned. Look, Iran is the primary. Um, you know, the Qataris—they sort of come and go, um, but they're a significant contributor. But the, the big thing is diversion. Right, there's money that comes into the Gaza Strip ostensibly for humanitarian assistance, and then it gets diverted. You know, if you saw during the war, there was that metro system that the yeah. Israelis attacked, that labyrinth of tunnels. Yeah. They were only able to build that because they were able to divert all of the cement. And um, and other building material that was supposed to go to um, you know the, the the building of better homes and, uh, and apartment buildings and hospitals and schools, but instead it all went underground. And so you know that there needs to be better oversight in terms of humanitarian is it, assistance. Is it possible?
0: As well. Is it possible? Can you get a UN mechanism? Can you get a UAE mechanism or or, or pan like a, an Arab League mechanism in there to make sure the money goes to the right places? See, I actually I like that a lot better.
2: And, and I, I talk about that toward the end of the book as well. You know, the Qataris, they're, they're the fox in charge of the hen house. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to put it in good old Midwestern terms. Dan. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Right. But, you know, that the, the idea that they would somehow safeguard uh, Gaza against the influence of Qatar when Qatar is a promoter. Of Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood. It's an insane proposition. And I've I mean, I've, I've yelled about it until I've been blue in the face here in Washington, including testimony before Congress. Nobody seems to care because the Qataris, you know, have a huge amount of money. And we also, by the way, have America has its most important airbase in the Middle East based right. in Qatar. So we yeah. sort of go. Oh, so it's, crazy. So
0: it's crazy. It's crazy.
2: But instead of the Qataris, it should be the Emiratis. The Emiratis, as I mentioned, they're best in breed in the Middle East. They are actually moderate. They are actually um, committed toward peace and coexistence in the region. They put their money where their mouth is in terms of making peace with Israel. So maybe if they, the only question is, do they want to? I mean, if you're volunteering to put your people in the Gaza Strip, I mean, that is volunteering to eat your rancid tub of hummus. Um, it's, it, you,
0: no one you, wants
1: it. <laughs> I want to, I want to say something about the Emiratis in, the, in this context, but, I, but before I do, I mean, the Emiratis are probably seen right now as collaborators with us to the extent what, that they, they could get into the Gaza Strip and be seen as a, as a broker or, it, or some sort of a mediator. Almost. Don't you think that that ship has sailed in terms of the Palestinian people? Oh yeah, in, They're, hate, they're hated by Yemen. Hamas.
2: They're hated yeah, by Hamas, right. but the question is, could you have some kind of Arab League coordinated yeah, exactly, thing,
0: exactly.
2: right? With yeah. the Emirates playing a role um, and actually having, you know, a foothold inside as opposed to being on the outside looking in. So, exactly. You know, and, 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 and
1: I, I think, well, let me just say, I think that it's it's definitely advantageous to the Gazans that that uh, that they would play that kind of a role, if if anything. Of course, that was my experience in the UAE, and we're going back to where we started at the beginning of the show. You know, my impressions of it the the sheer efficiency of what's going on there, and the fact that everybody seems to be on board in terms of the Emirati population and those that live there, in terms of the progress that the Emirates, that oh, the UAE, yeah. are making. Money talks, dude. And 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 the support in leadership in the UAE and understanding that their system seems to be working very well for them. Uh, it, it it kind of goes far to the point of to say, you know. I think at the very end of all of this, and we're talking a lot about geopolitics and influence and interests and these sorts of things, Gaza will probably only be better when the Gazans want it to be better. In that, when they're able to actually support a change on a broad level, I mean, if, and if—and I don't know—I mean, it's very difficult probably to do polling in the Gaza Strip, but it's like, how many people would want to support significant change to the fact to the point where you could change Gaza to be more like The Emirates in Gaza. Well, you're you're jumping. I'm jumping very far, but 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 it's look. We just wait, wait. I want to say, and I'll (laughs) I'll finish. I'll finish with this. We've gone and seen wars that have been fought in Iraq and in Afghanistan towards regime change that don't enjoy broad support of the Iraqis or the afghanis in many ways. And I know that I'm simplifying this to a very big extent, but it seems that if the people aren't on board with the change that you're trying to create, the change won't be very long lived. Of course. So. For me, the question is, OK, how do you get the people that are there to understand that the, that the current people that are in control of them don't have their best interests yeah. in mind and I, to create mass support right. on the ground to change that? For, I, I, I think David Pollack at the Washington Institute does polls of Gaza
0: pretty well. If, if I understand correctly, I'd be curious to go back and look at them.
2: He does. But I mean, look, the problem with polling is, I mean, just imagine you're you're a Gazan. Right? Yeah, they don't you're, trust. You're, it. They don't you're trust. You're one of t- two million people living in an area the size of Washington, D.C. It's run by a terrorist organization that's controlled by Iran um, at the end of the day. Their primary goal is war with Israel, not governance. And you get a phone call from a pollster saying... Yeah. On a, you know, uh, on a scale of one to 10, how do you rank Hamas governance? Um, you know, and, and, you know oh, it's a 10. It's great. I love it. You know, I mean, are Can you going to give really it a letter? Right, right. Uh, so, you know, polls in a place like that are, are really tough. I mean, what, what you, what you ultimately need to, to see is the people rising up sort of like the green revolution of 2009 inside yeah. Iran, something like that, where people try to didn't take it work back. out well. Yeah, it didn't. Um, it did. what. Well, Primarily because President Obama didn't get behind it, which, you know, I think was probably one of the greatest mistakes of um, of his presidency. But the, the other thing that people have talked about is that, you know, they want the PA to take it back over, right? Because the PA lost it in a war. Uh, we can call it that. It was a civil war of 2007.
1: Which you wrote and- a book
0: about.
2: Which I wrote a book about, which is also available on Amazon.com. Um, and but the the point is, is that you know we'd love to see the PA, or a lot of people would love to see the PA take back
0: control. But they're but also extremely unpopular.
2: They are, and that's the problem: is they're not any better at governance. They're they're right. they're just more corrupt, but maybe a bit more pragmatic. Right. Uh, As opposed to Hamas, which is less corrupt, but totally not pragmatic. Exactly. And and, and so you've got two horrible choices. And what you really want is a government that's legitimate on all sides. And and look, this is a lot of you know, you have a lot of people say, well, when's this whole thing going to end? You know, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, when's it going to end? Well, actually, a lot of it has to do with when are you actually going to see some new leaders emerge that, you know, the next Nelson Mandela or Mahatma Gandhi that comes out of the P.A.? haven't seen it lately um, yep. you yep. know doesn't inspire
0: a lot of confidence but you, you said you know you touched on something that I wanted to ask and that's um, Hamas you know you I, I asked you earlier what are the ways that you can kind of tame Hamas or get them to come to the table and, and the, the truth I think that people that my understanding I'd love to hear your this because you've been a longtime Gaza expert and Palestinian politics expert. You 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 just said it kind of now is that they're very uh, they're not corrupt um, they do have their act together but they're extremists so and and I think what we here in Israel and I think people in the West tend to miss is that their goals and and, and you know are not the same as ours they don't want to see the thriving quiet peaceful life economic prosperity they don't want Gaza to turn into a UAE. No or a singapore like we like to see no. here their their goal is is conflict with israel perpetuating the conflict with israel and they will suffer and they will make the people of gaza suffer for that end and so you know what you were saying earlier is about you know getting the money into the right hands sidelining them get, you know cutting off the funding what does that do if you cut off the funding let's say uh, and this is kind of something else i wanted to bring up with you is is if you can get qatar into the abraham accords um which we can talk about next i I wrote down a note and you cut off the qatari funding and you cut off the uh the al jazeera uh in the the inflammation that they they bring to the region through al jazeera which is you know run by qatar okay you cut off some of the funding you have a rapprochement with turkey and you cut off some of the funding you managed to somehow cut off the iranian funding so now you have I think even a more desperate Hamas, they don't come to the table. I mean, wh- so what do you do with Hamas?
2: Well, if they don't have any support, that they have a problem, right? If they're if they're not able to get that support, but one thing that I'll just say here is um, that I, I don't want to say that they're not corrupt because they're corrupt in in different ways, right? If they're di- if they are diverting um, humanitarian assistance to build, you know, military infrastructure, that's that's corruption. It's maybe it's not personal corruption, right? Okay. Um, but but it's corruption, you know. I would say it's diversion of funds, which is corruption, right? Um, but the other thing I think, you, and you point this out, they exist to destroy Israel or they exist to fight Israel. I would argue that they don't actually ever think they're going to win when they start these wars with Israel. No, they right? don't. When they, when they, they 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 know they're going to get. No, they can't.
0: They know, they know they're
2: going to. They know they're going to get shellacked, and they actually enjoy. The, the, the media coverage, which paints them as, as David versus Israel as the Goliath, and they talk about how poorly they're treated and war crimes and things like that. But one thing, and I, I talked about this pretty early on in the book, I don't know if you guys watched TV, I think it was the second night of the war. Um, there was this strike on the Ashkelon um, gas pipeline. Did you mm-hmm. see, did you happen to see the video from that? It was actually, it was incredible. It was a nighttime attack. And apparently it was just a mortar that got through because Iron Dome can't take out mortars, right? right? So it's just small bomb, right? That was launched about six kilometers. So whatever that is, three, three and a half miles, whatever it is from central Gaza Strip. It hits a gas container um, that was actually being rented by the UAE. And it's a direct strike. And what I watched for hours was fireballs Coming up into the night sky, huge fireballs, and I believe to this day there's a gag order on it in Israel. So, uh, by the way, if the Shin Bet comes in, and and pulls you out of your studio and holds you, you know why? Um, they're
1: too busy monitoring COVID people at the moment.
0: Yes, probably true. Probably true. you
1: got cleared for
0: you got your PCR test right?
1: Yeah, I'm fine. Okay, okay, because they're not going to track you then. Yeah, I just have COVID, but you're
0: vaccinated, so it's no problem. It's fine. I am triple vaccinated. We're good. Good, good for you. Um,
2: but but at any rate the um the, the the you know what that proved to me actually was that something that again go, goes completely unnoticed in our media, which is that Hamas they don't actually try to win, but they they need oh. moments like that. Right, a moment just like that where they are able to show that they're able to cause significant damage. It's actually, I mean, they aspire to genocide, but they'll settle for something like this as a moment where they can flex a muscle and say, "We did this." Well, well so that, they that's they
1: their definition of victory, right? I was it's a saying, different definition. It, it's like their their definition of victory is producing really good content, yeah, to play yes. on, a, on a on a highlights reel. And, well, and, it, back, and it's to show to that football. they're
2: that they're winning and losing simultaneously right on the one hand they can score yes. a shot like that on the other hand look at how how you know the, the war crimes that are being perpetrated against us yeah. look at the lopsided death count right and, and and that's proof that israel is doing terrible things to our people and it's this it, and yet somehow this is still bought hook line and sinker it, it
1: is. is it's they crazy, they, they, like, it is. they basically exist to continue to exist for example like yes. if, if if there were to be peace there would they, would, they don't know they, what to do. They, they don't know what to do themselves. They don't if they were to, if let's say they're, you know, this long game pays off in the end and we, we cease to exist,
0: what would they do? Right. No, they, they can't. I mean, it's literally they're their very, name. Harakat right. al-Mukawwa al Islamia It's a resistance. always he's bringing out the Arabic. Like. Look at that. By Did the way, I
2: I'll just, I, it was good. It was good. I, okay. I will tell you, by the way, that uh, just as an aside, um, when I was in graduate school at Hebrew University, a very, very too long time ago, um, we all used to joke that, you know we were learning the hebrew and arabic of of the conflict and we would joke that if peace ever broke out we wouldn't know how to speak either language um you know that was those those the, that was the um the vocabulary that we learned
0: true it's true so i'm oh. in the
2: same boat as hamas is i guess what you know yeah yeah
0: i'm gonna share i'm gonna share two quick stories about that i remember years ago i would go into john's office every every uh, day because because was one of the few people that would actually talk to me and uh I remember, you had this Arabic dictionary, and you uh, we did this thing where we'd learn like an Arabic word together, like every day. Because I was I was taking Arabic at the time. Um, I didn't get to touch when I made Aliyah here. I didn't get to touch my Arabic for a long time. I was working, learning professional Hebrew, academic Hebrew, professional Hebrew, and of course, my English was my big advantage uh, in the places where I worked. And recently, in the past year and a half, because I've been working with the Gulf, I've been working with Arabs, I've been traveling with Arabs. My Arabic is totally coming back. I'm speaking near full conversations. I won't say deep conversations, but full conversations. Um, I even actually interviewed some people uh, to come on a delegation to Israel and uh, their English was not great. One of them didn't even speak English. And so I had to do it mostly in Arabic and I was actually very, very proud of it.
2: <laughs> Mashallah, Mashallah. Uh, can, I, can I just say, actually, Dan, while we're talking about that time that we, um, that we worked together, um, Can we talk about your hair you had you had you had some you had some long hair. He really
1: did. Yes, I did. But I was living in D.C. at the same time. That's actually how Dan and I know each other. So I would remember that Dan's hair was like we we used to call him Stalos. Yeah, I have pictures of it. So that was,
2: I, I guess, that was pre-man
0: bun, though. So you weren't, you weren't, you didn't put it in, it a, in the it build up. It was in
1: the build up to the to that. You yeah, it yeah. was Stalos. It was like you should have given you like. Oh, this was ju-
0: before. This was before you met me. This was before. This was when I started growing it out. So it was like okay. Probably so you like were, down to like,
1: here-ish. but you still had the Stalos hair. I was going for it. Somebody should have given you a bazooki and like put <laughs> you on the Ebe show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so many references there that some people will get
1: right. <laughs> What happened to the eve show i don't know he's gone
0: he's still around
1: i don't know um
2: anyway i i, I would say that that dan's hair was um you just couldn't you couldn't not notice it as, as he sort of walked down the halls of the institute
0: and everyone was so like buttoned up and proper and i was like bring yeah, it back!" I'm, I'm the guy with the long hair this like very proper you know bring <laughs> it back. but it's all good bring it back um do you think there's a chance Qatar can get sucked into the abraham accords I mean, there's
2: a chance. But the thing is, is like, are they really going to change? Are they no. really going to stop promoting no. Islamism around the world? Are they really going to stop promoting uh, anti-Israel sentiment around the world? Are they going to stop funding Hamas? Are they going to stop funding Al Qaeda and the Taliban? And I mean, You know, I mean, this is this is a really dirty regime. I don't think people appreciate how dirty the Qataris are. They're they're a mafia family with a seat at the U.N. sitting on a ton of energy wealth. That's what they are. I don't
1: think people realize that at all, because I think I think, you know, outward, outward, you know, outwardly speaking, they look, you know, they have Qatar Airways, Qatar Airlines, Qatar Airlines, which is like this, the premier from Qatar Airways which is a yeah. you know, wonderful airline which flies all over the world, with many different destinations in the United States.
2: And Qatar uh, Airways think... is the sponsor of, I don't know, one of those Premier League soccer teams. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. hosting the World Cup. To the, to nice the
1: uninitiated, year. they look very much like the UAE in many ways. In right. that way. and They have like, a real like rivalry. They, have they, they really do have a rivalry. Rival. Yes, they it's do. A real,
2: real, real. Yeah. Uh, you know, but by the way, speaking of World Cup, for, for those out there, I mean, I still want to say bye my book, but another book that is fascinating um, it's called The Ugly Game is the name of the book. And it is the story by two British journalists who uncovered how the Qataris bought off the World Cup, bribed their way. Oh, no kidding. The world. It yeah. is unbelievable what they did to buy off the World Cup. And these guys and are
0: still alive? The journalists,
2: the journalists are said they went undercover to write the book.
0: Of course. And
2: they, and they were definitely afraid of being caught. They finally came out with it. And um, it's a remarkable book. You read about that, and then you read all about all the other stuff. I mean, you know, the, the story of the Qataris, it's just, I mean, yeah, they, they, they're, a, they're a pain in the butt to the Israelis, but um, between the World Cup, um, you know, you look at what happened in Afghanistan, right? The withdrawal from the US, of the U.S. from Afghanistan. Do you know, I mean, it was the Qataris that created a Taliban embassy in Doha. That began the conversations with the United States back in 2011. They were angling for the withdrawal. Now it's amazing today because the Qataris get credit for helping to get Americans out of Afghanistan, and they're the heroes at all of this. At least that's the way that it's being mm-hmm. painted. But I got to tell you something. This was their doing. They planned this for like ten years. This is what they were angling for. Are and they, they got sophisticated? The US to do it.
0: Are they sophisticated, John?
2: Yeah. They. I mean, look what they have is they got a lot of money. Um, and they're willing to spend it for influence. Um, they're willing to spend it uh, to gain leverage around the region. And they they invest in, you know, positive things like soccer clubs and then negative things like the Taliban or, you know, and by the way, also host the largest American airbase in the Middle East. Yeah, how and does that go hand in hand?
0: Put, I don't get it.
2: It's amazing that they are able to pull it off. And here's the actually the remarkable. I've been to Qatar twice.
0: Um, I don't think they're going to welcome you anymore. After No, no,
2: I don't think I'm allowed back uh, anytime soon. But the the country is it's a million people total population in this entire little archipelago.
0: Hmm.
2: Um, And only 250,000 of them are Qataris,
0: much like the rest of the region.
2: I know, but can you imagine you've got an entire country that wields yeah. this kind of influence, as a seat at the UN, it's is going around sponsoring terrorism left and right, right, and, and and getting into the good graces of the United States and others while they do it. And there are 250,000 people,
0: people that yeah.
2: ultimately call themselves Qatari. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's crazy.
0: Nuts. It's nuts. Somebody, I, you know, uh, like I said, I've been hanging out a lot with Emiratis, Saudis lately, uh, Bahrainis. <laughs> Um, I forget who explained this to me, but uh, it was explained to me that they might not actually be that radical. It's just a very useful tool for them to promote radicalism, to to have their hold on power and influence in the region so that they're not actually committed to this ideology. It's just a tool for them.
2: I mean, I think at this point it's probably both. I think it's pretty clear that they use it to to get leverage. I think that that's for sure. But, um, you know, the Qataris are Wahhabis at the end of the day. And what's interesting is that that probably puts them as the only country currently promoting Wahhabism in their own way. Because
0: Saudi Arabia is not anymore. I the Saudis got out of the game. Saudi are the no Saudis longer got out of the home.
2: game. Yeah. I, at least for now. I mean, look, they could always go back in, but the Saudis have actually tried to turn a corner with all the the, the baggage that the Saudis bring with them. They're actually they've, they've turned a corner on a couple Absolutely. of things at this one probably being the most important of them, yeah. that they don't you know promote this radicalism around the world that they once did.
0: It's true. The, the new leadership is totally detached from this and domestically also uh, reforming Sharia law. Oh, absolutely.
2: You would be amazed. You can walk around. There's no more religious police, um, you know, making sure that women have their heads covered. Obviously women are driving, but you can see what women walking around mixing with men. Um, it's a totally different um, country uh, domestically as a result. So,
0: so I hear from uh, a lot of people who uh, I'm actually uh, considering figuring out a trip there uh, next year and, um, and and uh, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by what's happening in Saudi uh, as an expression of kind of all of these changes happening in the region as a, an expression of all this. Um, you guys should
2: go with your American passports and, yeah. you know, hold an episode, host an episode of juonst from Riyadh. That's can, right. we get,
0: can we get MBS on our show?
2: Uh, I don't know. But you know talk, what? Try. Talk to Jared. Go
0: for it. Huh? Talk to Jared. I will talk to Jared. I will talk to Jared. And I'll tell you something offline about that after we... Uh, Stop recording. Um, <laughs> Tease to all that. By the way, watching us now, I have to give a shout out to Weiss, Please. our friend Weiss Habib, who uh, managed to get out of Afghanistan. We had he was, he was our biggest fan from Afghanistan, tunes into many of our episodes, and managed uh, to finally get on a flight out of uh, out of Afghanistan. He's in a refugee camp in Abu Dhabi right now. Um, and we hope you're doing well, Weiss. Um, we, we've been following the whole thing, trying to help as much as we could on our end, and uh, glad to see that you are safe and uh, and doing well for now in, uh, in the UAE. So uh, we're glad you're watching us, buddy. Um, you mentioned Iran, and uh, we know that this week...
2: I, t- I tend to do that sometimes.
0: Well, you know, <laughs> it's kind of your institute kind of does a lot of Iran stuff. Um, the... The U.S. Uh, and and the the P5 plus one are going back into the Iran talks this week. Um, can you give us kind of a breakdown for our listeners of what's going on and where you see this going?
2: Yeah, I mean it's a it's a dog's breakfast. Um, it, it's yeah, not, yeah. It just it's a mess. It's a whole bunch of things that have come together in a very unpalatable, unappetizing way. But basically, you've got a very desperate United States, a very desperate EU. They'd love nothing more than to get Iran back into what they call compliance. And what they want to do is they want to throw additional sanctions relief and other perks at the Iranians. The Iranians are not buying it, um, or at least they haven't until now. Um, And they are not likely to um, come back into the deal as it was structured. They want more concessions. They want more guarantees. What I'm hearing from our folks at FDD, our CEO Mark Dubowitz has talked about this a lot is this idea of less for more. So, in other words, we ask for less and they get more. Um, So, a a, a modified version of the JCPOA that enables the Iranians. In in the Iranians' favor, right, that we're so desperate here in the United States, Rob Malley, the the envoy to the Iran process, is so desperate to get them back into into some kind of a deal that will be willing to give them more um, sanctions relief, more perks, less restrictions, as long as they agree to some component of the deal. So there's a lot of desperation.
1: I think they'll get everything they want. Let,
2: you that, know, let the back. only question is whether they want it. I mean, right now, that you know, if you if you saw the news today, um, there's there are a couple of items in the Israeli press basically saying that a that Iran was now moving forward to enrich um, at military grade uranium, um, and that in fact they also have openly declared their intent to acquire a nuclear weapon, which is something that Iran has never. never done. You may wait, recall there's there's that, that, look, that Iran is Iran is openly declared its intent to acquire a nuclear weapon which they've always denied they've always said that you know right. the, the weapons program was not part of it the, wasn't civilian. their goal oh, only was a, civilian. fatwa
0: that they would never develop right. well it
2: turns out that fatwa was you know maybe not worth the paper that it was printed on um, i know gonna that's shocking
0: i'm going to go for a bad joke do here. it fatwa or fakewa no no that's it's bad it's bad oh, i'm really off my game i
2: could i could smell that from here man <laughs>
0: I'm off. I'm off today, dude. No. I got to stop. I got to stop. While I'm, I'm not even ahead. I got to stop while I'm behind. Oh. It's bad. It's bad. Well, I, yeah. I here's, I here's, to, here's the thing. I wait.
1: apologize to all. We're of editing all that list. out. We're editing all of the bad, <laughs> bad <laughs> jokes out of the show. Listen, at, at what point do the Iranians say, listen, you know what? These people are weak. We're going to make them call. I it. think that's what they're doing. we're going to make them call our bluff.
2: Well, they, you know, and, and I think they they probably are thinking that, but he, here's um, you know he, here's what's given them pause, and I well I'll, once again I'll refer back to the to the book I have a, a chapter in here, it's uh, I don't remember what number it is, but it's a chapter on what I call or what the Israelis call the war between wars. It's um,
0: I remember when that was coined. Because I was working in the place that coined it.
2: <laughs> there you go. So it's chapter nine in the book, and and what the Israelis have been doing for the last, gosh, eight or nine years is that they have been relentlessly attacking all these aspects of not just, I mean, they're definitely hitting Iran's nuclear program and we've seen that through cyber means, through assassinations of uh, Iranian um, scientists and things like that. Um, but they've also gone after terrorists that have been based in Iran, terrorist leaders that have been in Iraq, like Qasem Soleimani, you remember, may remember of, uh, from New Year's Day, uh, I don't remember what last year, year that was. Last, last year. year, thank you, last year. Um, but so you have all that going on. You got the bombing that's going on in Syria, where the Israelis have taken out you know, one weapon after another that's, that they're trying to smuggle into Syria. You got um, battles on the high seas that are taking place where the Iranians are losing ships in the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman and the Mediterranean. So the Israelis are just giving it to them, yep. you know, left, right, left, right. And um, so there's a question I think from the Iranian perspective is, you know, if they try to go um, and make a dash, right? Or to sneak out to a bomb, What will the Israelis do there? There's a certain amount of unpredictability. And I got to say, that's the best thing that America has going for it right now in terms of leverage at the negotiating table. I don't think the Biden administration recognizes that. They certainly don't acknowledge it. But it's the best thing that we've got going for us right now if the goal is to try to keep Iran at least a little bit scared. Because right now our military is unwilling to threaten Iran well, that's, in any and that's, and that's
1: kind of that's kind of what i was trying to get at it it seems like yes we we are the pitbull to the you know to the us we're, we're, we're the you know what do you call it yeah we're we're, we're, the, we're the mad dog we're the mad dog know? in the room but but also every single time i've ever heard somebody whether it's the secretary of defense or or some other american politician come out and say, you know, uh, all options are on the table. And, and you know, I kind of look at that and I'm like, it's fake. are they? No, are fine. they really? Are there any options on the table that, you know, I, literally the only way that I could see the United States being drawn into a conflict is if Iran actually attacked the United States. That's exactly right. And, yeah. and, and I, remember, I remember running an analysis. Um,
0: the, the only times that Iran really, really stopped enrichment was when it felt like it was militarily threatened by the U.S., when the u.s went yeah. to iraq and, and a couple other times and if the you if there's no clear threat of the use of force iran you know it can deal with the sanctions i don't think it's going to be running to the table
2: yeah i uh, you know but- i would actually also add that, that during trump the the unpredictability i mean the guy was you know he had no idea what he was going to do from one day to the next there are a lot of people who decry that and i think that you know there's there's good reason to, to decry it but on the other part of it was that the Iranians had no idea what he was going to do, and so you know what? Maybe let's not take that next step. Yeah. Uh, now a caveat to all this, and and you know just take this for what it's worth. But I had an opportunity to sit, uh, I guess about two or three weeks ago, with some pretty senior um, military officials from the U.S. side, um, and was talking to them about. Um, kind of just overall what was going on in the Gulf yeah. and how to understand what the Iranians were doing and how to understand what the U.S. messaging is, and um, you know what he said was is look look we we really screwed up that withdrawal from Afghanistan there's no question about it right that was that was horrible optics we don't look professional we look weak blah 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 so, but you got to remember that the other thing that we're meant to do. Right? There's war fighting, and then I guess there's also making sure that the shipping lanes are clear
0: mm. in,
2: um, in, in the Persian Gulf. But he said, look, we are here to deter Iran from threatening its neighbors and from threatening us. That's what we do in the Gulf. And, and I have to say, that still makes a lot of sense. The only question is, will they back that up if the time comes? I don't know really the answer to it, but you know, it's sort of like that meme, you had one job. you know, With <laughs> Afghanistan done, this is the one job.
0: This, right? is it. Yeah. this is
2: it. This is, you know, if, if Iran becomes too aggressive and threatens world security, you know, now the, I think the big question is will the United States public even allow for that? We've, we're so done with, as I mentioned before, the neo isolationist trend. We're so done with this right now. We're done with, you know, conflict in the Middle East, endless wars. Um, forever. You know, wars. Forever wars. Forever. By the way, that was a decent book. It's a sci fi book, uh, The Forever War actually it wasn't bad um the way that it's been bastardized um you know i mean th- that book was about fighting aliens literally forever our forever wars yeah you know yeah. i'm not sure they're forever
0: 20 years is not forever um yeah. we, we we i don't know if he's still on on with us but uh one of our good buddies danny uh Sitrinovich, um a, a serious serious iran expert here in israel uh he's been on the show he's talked about iran i actually saw him on the on the news here in Israel this week saying, oh, yeah? and he said it here before, and he said it anytime he gets a microphone in his hand. The um, leaving the JCPoA was a mistake. Now we can argue, and I did argue, and I'm sure you did too, that the JCPO itself was weak, was lacking, uh, should have been a much stronger Iran deal. This was one of the big. I think um, I don't even think it was a mistake. I think I think it was it, it was intent. Intentful uh, misleading of the American people and of world opinion when the Obama administration, our friend Ben Rhodes that we talked about, said it's either this deal or war, and it was clear to anyone serious on Iran that it's not this deal or war; it's this deal or just better 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 deal. But let's put that aside. I I have a feeling you and you and us agree on that. the The deal was achieved. Okay, the deal was achieved. It was in place for a few years. It rolled back Iran's nuclear program. Do you think it was a mistake? to get out of the deal once it was in place. Forget what so, you thought about the right. original deal.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, so, I mean, I think we can all agree that the original deal was um, was, was a disaster. Um, what I would say is, you know, there was a serious debate within FTD. There were fixers and there were nixers, right? Okay. There were those that said you should fix whatever the deal is, it's flawed, you have an opportunity now, because Trump wants to get out and he's threatening to get out, you know, we should leverage that. Um, and fix it. And I happen to be a fixer. I I definitely believe that there were ways that we could have addressed more of the problems um, without getting out of the deal. And then the Mm -hmm. mixers were saying, you know what, forget it, mix the whole thing, screw it, we got to get out. This is a disaster. Um, My understanding is that we were actually pretty close to fixing Mm -hmm. the bulk of the issues that the US government brought before the UK and the French and the Germans that I think, you know, I don't know, maybe there were five or six different issues, four or five of them were were actually settled. And um, the big issue was actually that Trump had to keep um, issuing a waiver on the sanctions right. relief. And he just said, you know what, I'm not doing this again. You guys didn't fix it. I think actually, you know, if you're going to blame anybody, a lot of people will blame Trump, and I think that's fine. Um, but I don't think the Europeans in particular took Trump seriously enough when he said, I'm getting out um, like, oh, you know, he's not going to get out. He wouldn't do that. Okay, meet Donald Trump, folks. Um, <laughs> right? Like, it, it was going to happen. And he just was not going to put it, he's not going to sign his name. Yeah, so one yeah. more waiver on this thing. And so we said, that's it, I'm out. So I think, you know, if, uh, when I talk to Israelis, there are Israelis still to this day that say, you know, having a deal is better than nothing. Right. And, and they're thinking behind it. By the way, I think there are a lot of people that really, it's overblown you know, there's that group that uh, I think J Street goes around with a bunch of former generals saying that, you know, the uh, JCPOA is good for America and good for Israel. Yeah, it's like 30 people or something. There's, I think, five times that from this new Israeli group called the Honistim. I think that is what yeah. it's called.
0: Mm-hmm. But, know, but I think where, here too, and, we and also have to fix it and nix it. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you but, know, but, even but, once it was achieved, you know, people say, okay, it wasn't right. good, but now we're in right. it. It's just-
2: but, yeah, but so what a lot of the, the, the military folks are saying is at least you have something that's going to prevent Iran from going nuclear. So it gives Israel a little bit more time to breathe and plan, right, so that Israel can actually figure out what it wants to do. But I would actually argue that we've had now. What is it? I mean, the deal was signed in 2015, right? It's 2021. The Israelis have had six years to plan. Um, to do whatever it is that they think they're going to do. I don't think you could have ever guaranteed anyone that Iran was gonna stay in the deal and that it was gonna not go nuclear. It was gonna go nuclear. It was just a question of when. Yeah. So you know, the fact that we're on the precipice again, I don't necessarily blame Trump. Yeah, maybe we could have had another couple of years for planning purposes, right? And trying to get Iran to, to back down. But I think the likelihood was they were gonna end up probably in the same place.
0: Um, before we kind of wrap up on the geopolitical stuff, I'm curious on Afghanistan. I don't know how much you follow it. I don't know how much you tracked it. Was there a better way to do it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not a big Afghan guy. And by the way, I'm, I am going to have to jump in, in a minute here. Yeah. Um, but um, we have people that work for us and we have a kind of a micro site. Um, they operate independently, but within the FTD brand. Um, it's called the Long War Journal. Yeah. Um, yeah Long definitely. War Journal. They are tremendous. Both of those guys are unbelievable Afghanistan and, and jihadism analysts. And um, look, the, the, there are a couple of things. One is don't pull out your military before you pull out your political um, assets. God, I mean, that's just like 101, right? You pull out your military and there's no one there to guard the, 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 the political guys. Of course, they're going to get left hung out to drive. That was just 101 basic stuff. Why that happened, I couldn't tell you. I think CENTCOM was taking the, you know, taking their cues from the White House, but that was a, a just a cluster on every level. The yeah. other thing is, so right now Afghanistan's entering fighting, uh, the end of fighting season, right? The 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 weather's horrible, um, and no one wants to fight. Right? It's just not feasible to fight during a time like this. Why didn't they just wait until the end of fighting season? And give the government a little bit of time to reinforce Mm -hmm. and to get its feet under them. So just two things that I could think of up the top of my head. But it was not a professionally executed withdrawal, to put it
0: mildly. Right. So uh, to wrap things up, we kind of always like to wrap up on kind of a lighter note. Um, You're an Eagles fan, right? Oh, I hate it.
2: What I'm, I'm miserable no i mean i am but i mean they they lost yesterday to the giants one of the worst teams in football yeah i got i got a kid that i've raised as like a Eagles sports fan like through and through and, and it was funny last year during the pandemic we're we're watching um i i had um direct tv um and we're watching and my son about halfway through the season half three through one of the games looks at me he's like dad why did you make me do this i mean it was just that bad, and so actually, I, we ended up quitting DirecTV. I don't get the package anymore. I was spending like four hundred dollars a year to watch a terrible team take up four hours of my weekend.
0: You know, you just um, get NFL Game Pass, right?
2: Yeah, but it's it's not the same. I mean, yeah, you could do the the half thing on the on the phone or whatever.
0: Yeah, but, no, but, I mean, you
2: know, thing? yeah. But we, we, I just I gave up on it. I'm gonna. I, I just need a. I need a breather. I need. I just need a deep breath. But they're they're a garbage franchise.
0: Um, well, hey, come you on! Heard it
2: here first.
0: You come on. You have a you have a recent Super Bowl. I'm a Bears. Yes. Fan. I'm a Bears fan. If it makes you feel better.
2: I I mean, you had your moments too. Look, that that Super Bowl um, was one of the highlights of of my adult life. I had people calling to congratulate right me. They were congratulating me as if like I I, I you know. <laughs> emitted an ounce of sweat on that field, but people knew how invested I was in, in that game. And, and so it was a,
0: the, the, what was it called? The Philly, the miracle. Philly special, the, the Philly, Philly special. special, you threw the yeah. Philly special.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm actually only slightly less talented than Nick Foles, the MVP quarterback <laughs> from that game. Um, but, but uh, yeah, it was a it kind of a disaster of a, um, of a season last year, this year too. Um, They're you not know, bad. Kind of, They're not kind of, bad. Eh. They're,
0: I mean, they're not 500. They're not even at 500. It's a, like, it's a re- I got to say something about the NFL this year. It is unbelievably competitive almost every week.
2: Half among, among, ter- among terrible teams, yes. It's
0: you know what? Rare. But even the terrible teams are taking it down to the wire. <laughs> it's rare you see a blowout in the NFL. Um, you, you see games that come down to the fourth quarter, games that come down to the last minute yeah. all the time. Except
2: for when, they, when the Eagles played our, our most important NFC East rivals. They played the Dallas Cowboys, and the Dallas Cowboys crushed them on Monday night television. It's true. It's
0: true. The Cowboys yeah. are looking good this year. You're going to have a tough tough time getting into the playoffs. Oof. But, uh,
2: oof. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm ready for hockey. I mean, hockey season's already underway. So, um, there you I, go. You know,
0: yeah. There you go. What are you uh, watching these days outside of football? What are you reading? Anything for fun? That's not um, uh, nerdy and so. Political.
2: I actually just read a great bi- uh, biography of Mohammed bin Salman
0: um,
2: uh, called Blood and Oil. Um, did, did, it's- did
0: you write it also in, in less than four months?
2: No, 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 oh, okay. no. I couldn't write that. Um, they were the guys that wrote Million do- billion Dollar Whale, you know, that story about the Malaysian hedge fund that was totally corrupt. Anyway, two really good writers. They wrote this book called Blood and Oil. That was really good. Um, and um, watching a show that I can't believe I didn't watch. My wife and I have been just binging like, you know, um, shows on Netflix and Hulu and whatever. I feel like, by the way, I mean, I, I cut out the, the NFL package, but I have like seven different streaming services that I now have because, you know, you run out of content on one, you have to get another. But so we're we're watching False Flag. Uh, What's the Kf- False
0: Flag?
2: Fulim is the uh, what it is in in
0: um oh it's an israeli show
2: it's an israeli show um and the 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 beginning of the plot you remember the um uh what's the guy's name al mabhuth the um
1: yeah, Mahmoud al mabhuth
2: Mabhuth exactly see so, so, yeah if you remember the guy got guy got whacked at an Emirati um, hotel, Dubai. Yeah, 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 and there were these crazy, Allegedly. you know, Israeli spies walking around with fake mustaches and tennis outfits, and there yep. were a bunch of Israelis that had their passports um, stolen. Yep. Um, People with uh, foreign,
0: foreign passports, and New Zealand was quite pissed, I remember. Yes. Yeah,
2: so the, the basis of this story is that these five Israelis wake up one morning, and they see their names on TV. I, I recall operate- this, day, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we're one season in out of two and it's awesome. It's re- it's really good, one surprise after another. So
0: they make they make shockingly good shows here in Israel, I have to say.
2: They do. Although hit and run, I wasn't a big fan. But the other ones, I mean, you know, uh the Fouda guys have done great work.
0: All these shows that I actually haven't even gotten around to watching, except for a couple episodes here and there. Really? It's because you're cool. going
2: to the gym. Good for you, you know. <laughs>
0: Someone's got to do it. Um, Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, so once again, uh, check out the book, Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel and 11 Days of War. You can find it on Amazon and we will put up the link on the show note. Uh, You can follow uh, John on FDD's website and all of his fantastic writing and speaking engagements. Um, And John, we thank you so much for joining us here on Juanced.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, guys. This was a
0: blast. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, be well. We'll see everybody next time here
1: on Juonst. Juonst is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes,
0: visit us at juonst.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juwonst.